grootste ervaring. En nu, ladies en gentlemen, uw attention, please. Big decisions have even bigger consequences in the world of marketing leadership, where data informs everything, second chances are rare, and ROI is no longer the only metric that matters. Please join us as we go inside the funnel. All right, so I wanted to talk about one of my favorite movies. It's a Christopher Nolan movie, and it's one of his early ones. It's called Memento. Love it. And You've seen it, right? Mm-hmm. Great Guy movie. Pierce in Memento, Chef's Kiss. Great. Is it? Great. Is it the tattoos? Is it the tattoos I mean, that, that do it hurt. for you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he may even have a neck tattoo just for he you. Pro- <laughs> <laughs> wow, uh, we're he getting into does. deep, deep personal territory here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the reason I really like this movie is, you know, on the surface, it, there's not that much going on, right? It's it's a murder mystery. But it's the construct of the movie. It it begins at the at the end and it goes all the way to the beginning. It's it's a film shot in reverse. But the the other component of it is that the guy has no short term memory. So at the end of every scene, he starts all over again. And the person that he's interacting with, he has no idea where he is. He has no idea who he's interacting with. He has no context. And the only thing that he does to help him guide through this mystery is he tattoos these clues. And and you can think of them as data points to help guide him in his next interaction. So that brings us to the subject of today's episode, which is around personalization of digital experiences because i don't know about you guys but too often when you interact with brands online it feels exactly like that so no matter who you are what interactions you've had with them in the past the first it's as if it's the first time they've ever met you um so with that welcome to inside the funnel with my good friend jenna watson say hi jenna hey And my sometime colleague, Dan Tamby. Hello, Dan. <laughs> hey, Master. You know, without the tattoos, you also just described 50 first dates with Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore. A <laughs> <laughs> little different. A little, little different. different. <laughs> very similar backstory. One of, one of Adam Sandler's better movies, though. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. So on this idea of personalization, there, obviously it's an area that there's an enormous amount of uh, conversation around. And I think there's a lot of misalignment of what it actually means. So, so Dan, as our resident truth teller, <laughs> talk about the spectrum of personalization um, and, and what, what does it actually mean? Well, it's a, it is a good topic. And I think frequently people hear the word personalization and they instantly jump to this you know, deeply intimate, perfectly aligned one-to-one orchestration of messaging that is aligned with that person's identity and behavior, where if you roll that way back to the left of the spectrum, and I think back to stuff that I was doing in the late 1990s, building very rudimentary web page experiences or e-commerce platforms, And simply acknowledging that a visitor is not visiting your website for the first time, but is coming back for a subsequent visit and using language like welcome back as opposed to welcome is a rudimentary fundamental form of personalization, which can be executed on very easily. What's happened, I've I've, uh, sort of witnessed, is 
there's so much technology involved and there's so much AI and there's so many tools and data pools and sequencing platforms that people hear it and they immediately think that we're talking far right of the spectrum, deep, uh, you know, where we call it Westworld. Welcome back to Westworld. So there's this spectrum between this very, very basic idea of acknowledging uh, the Venn diagram, splitting it into two circles, you know, male, female, existing customer, new customer, first visitor, return visitor, something straightforward, uh, right through to a million little circles inside the Venn diagram that everybody wants to target. But the consequence of making that choice is increased complexity, very expensive, and all sorts of decisions that need to be made along the way, which I'm sure we'll get into as we discuss this a little further. Um, but we shouldn't let the pursuit of that get in the way of doing some of the fundamentals that can really help move things forward. So you you mentioned Westworld. What, what do um, murderous androids have to do with personalization? <laughs> well, it's it's more like, uh, you know, that is, and again, we're a very movie-flavored podcast today, um, <laughs> television. Uh, I think, you know, when you think about that TV show, which was fantastic and rich and complex, um, those AI-driven uh, Android figures were giving one-to-one humanized, tailored personal experiences to people based on in-the-moment human interaction, which you could imagine, you know, if you buy uh, Indochino suit, which I'm a big Indochino fan, uh, you know, you can do, you can self-serve online and they know who I am, but you go into the store and you get one of their associates to fit you up and measure you up and and give you that bespoke experience. You know, that could be a Westworld autonomous, you know, uh, uh, Android figure from the future, but instead it's a well-trained uh, you know, professional sales associate that can give me very personal service. And that is the ultimate form of personalization, which is where this Westworld analogy sort of came from. So I think central to all of this is data, right? Uh, in order to activate these personalized experiences. Uh, my question is, how much data do you need? And how? what is the level of personalization that you actually need to drive performance for brands. So I'd like you to explore these in two different areas. One is inside of the owned experience. So Dan, where you've been talking a lot about is the website and, and so on. And then the other is in the earned or even paid experience. Uh, Jenna, if you can explore that uh, in terms of what that needs to look like. So, so Dan, why don't you continue down this vein um, and talk about, you know, what, what are the data sources that you we need to look at to drive the kinds of personalization um, that ultimately brands are looking to to deliver. This is a great uh, jumping off point from our last episode where we started talking about managing identity uh, and collecting data uh, profiles on users um, using third-party cookies and all of the security and privacy implications that go with that. We also bridged into talking about DMPs, data management platforms, and CDPs, customer data platforms. These are sort of the, the, the central sources of this data when we talk about owned platforms, where we can start to build out uh, behavioral signals. And again, if you picture that Venn diagram idea, we start with this big sort of blob of, of users, and then we start to break that down into smaller segments and, uh, and, and cohorts based upon 
uh, common behaviors. And as we keep going, keep going, keep going, we can wind up with very, very, very specific, unique segments and behaviors that relate to one person. Uh, and again, uh, we'll talk about how far is too far, maybe a little later in the episode, because I think that's a really important point. Um, but primarily, we're talking about web analytic data, CDP, and DMP information uh, that we can string together uh, to build usable, actionable data points that we can then put into play uh, with uh, testing experience tools like a Optimizely or a Test and Target or Adobe Target, rather, uh, or AB Tasty or any of these sort of front-end experience tools that will allow you to orchestrate a unique experience based upon a signal that you have in your data pool. Bring her back online. Can you hear me? Picking up on these data sources, Jenna, how do you use that in media? How do you personalize the owned and earned experiences? Well, owned and earned are one thing. Paid is a whole different ball of wax. So let me take you all on the way back machine a little bit. And I remember when working with a client or a brand that had a DMP was the most exciting thing ever for a media person. Because the promise and what we all believed was right and good was way to the right of the Westworld spectrum, right? We talked about hyper-segmentation, micro-segments, almost as close to one-to-one as you could get and thinking about delivering media experiences to those people. Well, the reality of the thing is, when you go down to really small groups of people, A, you have to find them again online, and B, you need X iterations of personalized creative to serve to those people. And so there, there is a, a right level for every single brand. I think when we're talking about owned and earned things, so things that we have control over, certainly the website experience and making that as personalized as possible seems like a good and right thing to do. But what you have to think about when it comes to earned media um, and other paid channels. So, you know, personalizing even to a certain extent in paid search, for example, remarketing lists for search ads, talking to people differently, showing different ad copy ads for different keywords to different audiences, that sort of thing based on what they've done and come to your site. That's a level of personalization and that pays off and it works. But when we talk about, let's say, social media, for example, Social media, as we all know, has its own wacky algorithm running in the background. And so personalization tends to be done for you to a certain extent, right? So yes, advertising, you can target. Advertising is different than your organic feed. But if you're a brand that has an organic social feed happening and you're trying to attempt to do any sort of personalization with that outside of paid media, it's nearly impossible. And the other problem, I think, with a channel like that is the the reality of how it works today, right? We see the same things based on our behaviors over and over and over again. And so a marketer trying to change that uh, is kind of peeing into the wind, as it were, <laughs> based on, I was going to say the other P word, but this is a family, <laughs> family podcast. <laughs> okay, good. So let, I want to come back to this point about social media and, and the algorithms and personalization of those experiences. But before we go there, I, I want to ask a little bit about um, this idea of if of localization and where it plays sure. in that personalization spectrum. Because I, I believe that you can't go from a one-to-many message to a one-to-one message without first passing through one-to-a-few. And especially as we think about 
if we think purely through the look, just the lens of search, and we think about that customer journey, so thinking, planning, doing, and feeling, and we think about how the um, search engine results page changes based on that phase, it, it really needs that, that holistic approach and, and lens in order to truly personalize that experience. Could, could you perhaps talk a little bit about that, Jenna? Totally. So when we say thinking, planning, doing, feeling, it is the, the intent behind the customer journey. So at the thinking stage, that's where somebody needs information and inspiration. If you look at the SERP itself, the search engine results page, you will see mostly organic listings. You might see a video, you might see some images, depending on how broad the query is. So the SERP itself looks wildly different up there in the thinking stage. In the planning stage, that tends to be about comparison, gathering more information to make a decision, learning more about products, prices, availability, etc. And that's where you're going to start to see a lot more ads show up. You might start to see shopping ads. If it's a, an, a retail experience, something that can be purchased online or in a local store. And you may, might start to see some more of those, um, those results, such as from social feeds or videos or anything that's really relevant to the user. So the, the SERP itself changes dramatically. When we're down into the doing stage, which is the conversion point, you're probably going to get a map, right? So to your point, Nasser, about having local in that, even if local isn't necessarily directly typed in, even if you're not typing a postal code, a zip code, or near me, in many of these queries, the engine's natural language processing is smart enough now to understand that this could be serviced locally. So if I'm looking for, say, a plumber, it by the time I've, I've narrowed my queries and I've been doing refining my searches, I'm going to get maps results on that. I'm going to have localized results near me because that is something that Google understands is the personalized response that is best for me. So just think about any query you've done when you started from the very beginning and you use search all the way through, that SERP changes dramatically. And mm -hmm. it's it's paying off your intent to personalize I think, that. I think uh, it's very interesting on the on the paid side, the, the, the speed and sophistication with which those media uh, providers and platforms are accelerating the the intelligence in there on knowing how to parse intent from those queries or those behavioral threads and deliver something contextual is what a lot of brands are challenged or finding very challenging to pick up and continue into the owned experience right so how do you and i remember having a whiteboard session uh a couple of years ago on this very topic about this sort of there are infinite possibilities of the connection of image and message and color and sentiment that you could put into media the decision making that goes into which of those to assemble to give that perfect opportunity to convert that strikes a chord with that user for all the reasons that you don't really know at runtime it's all their behavior their personality what they what we think they want what their last experience was how do you make those decisions so that you pick up where they left off? And again, the, the Googles and Facebooks of the world are doing a fantastic job at you know, teasing out of their billions of rows of data the right experience to put in front of somebody. But as a brand, you're operating on a subset of that intelligence. And how do you continue that conversation in a very particular way? And it can be a little overwhelming. So, so build on this a little bit, Jenna. Um... What what happens when you personalize when you execute personalization well? Um, 
presumably there's a performance impact mm -hmm. uh, that happens. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, exactly. So what, what, what is the impact? Well, at the very beginning, your click-through rates can be higher, right? So if I see an ad that's based on something similar to what I've been looking at before, or even that exact product, I'm more, more likely to be like, oh, that's right, I didn't buy that cute little sweater, I better go get it. That's remarketing in a nutshell. That's super easy personalization. But when we're talking about personalized experiences from start to finish, your conversion rate should indeed go through the roof because it is as tailored to me as it can possibly be. And so for me, the marketing feels spot on. It feels like it is not a wasted media impression because it's about me. It's about my interests. And so if we do that and we can get the conversion rates to increase, obviously all of our performance improves. But the best part yet is maintaining that flow past purchase into the loyalty or feeling cycle of the journey, right? If we can keep that happening and keep staying relevant to the customer, we'll have better lifetime value. We'll have more loyal um, customers, followers, all that kind of stuff. So it absolutely pays benefits. You just have to decide how far to go. How far to right. go? Great question. Right. That's, that's exactly right. So how far should you go? So this takes us back to that whole thing about that continuum, Dan, from Welcome Back to Westworld. Right. Where, where do you fit? It's a paradox. If you wouldn't mind, so we wrote an article on this a while back, and I think we're going to publish it in follow-up to this episode because it's going to be a great companion read to what we're talking about. But if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to read the opening two paragraphs of that because I think it's a great primer for this conversation. Okay, but read it in a lively voice. I'm okay? going to try my very. We're going to be able to tell. All right, and if, not your usual. And if it's voice, not the good, good we'll get you to do it, and it will be way okay. better. Way better. <clears throat> so it Go says ahead. this. It says most of us grew up believing that we're special. Our mums, our teachers, and Mr. Rogers raised us to think that we're one of a kind. Now marketers have joined this choir of positive reinforcement, celebrating customer individuality by ushering in a new era of content personalization. Personalization, they say during their keynote speeches will be the prime driver of marketing success within five years. Now, on the other side, we've got data scientists continuing to present case studies showing that customers are essentially predictable. Invest in technology and skills that collect and analyze customer data, they say, and you'll find that people are reliably, people reliably behave like one another. Unique individuals, those are called outliers. The rest of us unknowingly travel in packs or segments, exhibiting wonderfully ordinary behavior, no matter how special we think we are. So what's the deal? Are we unique or do we predictably behave like others? And this is the primer for that conversation about where is the spectrum? Where is the point of diminishing return where we can build segmentation, build these Venn diagram uh, groups, establish rules that trigger certain experiences if somebody is a member of a group without going all the way down to this bespoke one-to-one -one thing. Because at some point, we're going to reach that sort of level of the tree where we're getting enough apples without the risk of climbing too high and falling over and over investing. So that, I think, is a really good conversation and one we're confronted with frequently when we're dealing with our clients and different brands that have these different ideas about what personalization ought to be. So let, let me ask you maybe a more fundamental question. Is personalization a good thing? I mean, I can see why it would be a good thing in if you're trying to drive performance. I can see how it would be a good thing 
from a website experience or even an email marketing perspective. Um, but but fundamentally, um, is it a good thing to have the algorithms decide how they should personalize the types of content we um, we get to read and consume? Jenna? Hmm. Are you asking me as a digital marketer or a human in the world? Citizen of the world. <laughs> as, as, a, as a human being, because you, you can make the case and that the too much personalization has has broken the world it, right frankly. right exactly and i i do sometimes make that case especially when it comes to the big giant f word which ends in ace book <laughs> <laughs> uh, so any brand that's doing marketing by all rights if you're gonna put money out there do a little personalization right get it as as relevant to a user as you can be without being obscene. And what I mean by obscene is exactly what Dan said. Does it mean that we have 4,000 micro segments, which means 4,000 different iterations of copy, which have to be trafficked and reported on? That's probably too many unless you've got millions and millions of site visitors all doing different crazy things. But we do know a little bit of personalization goes a long way, right? If you know for a fact that I have only ever purchased shoes from you, probably don't start trying to make me buy raincoats, right? These things are easy enough and at a level enough that it will improve your performance um, and you don't have to go too deep down that rabbit hole. Or or if I could add, try to lead you into the raincoat category by pairing it with shoes that complement and if using the, what we've known previously to try to expand the relationship. If the data indicates that that makes sense, right. then yes. 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 If the data does not indicate that that makes sense, then leave it alone. Right. Don't try to force it through, right? That, yeah, that's exactly right, Dan. So I think having somebody like a Prove Analytics team on your staff, a business intelligence person, a, a data scientist, to be able to tell you how far is too far is absolutely critical, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're exploring two ideas here. One about if it's a good or bad in the, you know, well, the social yeah. media echo chamber world is toxic. <laughs> and terrible yeah. on both sides of the aisle there. And that's a whole different conversation. The other side is how much, when are you just wasting money, right? It's like granularity of, you build out campaign structure and you do targeting and granularity. You go too far and you're not getting any meaningful return on that. So there's a good and bad argument, which I would love to explore. And then there's a functional, non-functional, you know, positive ROI or, uh, you know, a fractional uh, gain or diminishing return kind of thing, kind of idea. And I think that's, they're very, they're kind of cousins of one another, but they're not the same thing. Right. And I, I will say at a, as a citizen of the world, I am at a, an interesting spot because mm -hmm. I personally left Facebook for all intents and purposes, aside from a couple of groups in like 2017 mm -hmm. as a human in my job, do I help my clients advertise on Facebook every single day? Yes, I do. <laughs> because the performance is there. And it still is. Despite Cambridge Analytica, despite the press that all the young people are leaving Facebook in hordes, it is simply not true yet, let's say. Right. So. And Nasser, you have some pretty strong opinions on this topic as well. Oddly enough, I do. Um <laughs> So this is not a new topic. You know, I, I think back many, many years to um, that article. It was a TED Talk by, who was it? Eli Pariser. Uh, and he talked about this idea of the filter bubble, 
where the algorithms, the social platforms reward you uh, based on or they reward content based on its likelihood to be clicked by you, which basically means that they're reinforcing ideas rather than putting in front of you new ideas. Um, so I think that's, that is at the heart of this and the heart of, um, you know, growing intolerance and the, the growth of echo chambers and so on and, and an unwillingness to listen to or countenance a perspective that isn't yours. Um, I totally get that. And, and I think that's why this whole conversation around personalization, frankly, it's a little uncomfortable, right? Um, and as a digital marketer, we're it, guys. We're we're the guys that are that are kind of responsible for a lot of this. Maybe not directly, but but we're using the tools. They are the same tools. Make no mistake. Ultimately, um, that have people concerned. But this is this is where I'm getting at. Is is it a good thing? And and I think if we if we try to separate the two things and look at it from a performance perspective, specifically for brands. I think to an extent, personalization is very powerful and it's very meaningful because ultimately it's about giving people what they want, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you can make the case that, yeah, in some instances, personalization is not necessarily about giving people what they want, but it's about convincing them that this is something that they need that they hadn't even considered and utilizing subliminal um, triggers and data points to help drive that forward. This is exactly the the. the conversation that jenna and dan you just had Mm -hmm. about i'm just going to sell them shoes well actually you should sell them a raincoat and pair them with shoes Mm -hmm. if you're going to find through that experiment that either you're going to have the right type of data inputs and triggers that are going to get the outcome that they hadn't even knew that or known that they wanted in the first place or it's just not going to be worthwhile from an investment perspective. Mm-hmm. So, so why don't we pick up on this and talk about where, how does personalization go wrong? I mean, given the types of enterprise platforms and data sources and all of these kinds of things that are available to us, how does it still go awry? So I'll, I'll give you a, a perfect example. I knew last year what I was getting for Christmas three weeks in advance and nobody <laughs> told me except for the internet. Yep. So I'm, I'm sitting there and one day I suddenly get ads from Facebook um, or rather, no, it wasn't from Facebook. It was on third party sites, but they were, uh, they were ads for a very specific product. It, it was actually a very, very uh, cool uh, saw, circular saw. Um, I'd never looked this product up. I, I had no intent of buying a product like this. Um, but clearly somebody was going to buy it for me because I suddenly started seeing this ad everywhere. And this was three weeks before Christmas. And clearly that person had to have been in my household. So Dan, can you explain why I was seeing that ad and how a major gigantic retailer with a giant budget still gets that wrong? Yeah, there's lots of stories about this. Incidentally, I know what you're getting for Christmas this year. Um, but you don't. So <laughs> they're doing a better the job. Inter- well the done. internet didn't tell me, though. Your wife did. But that's besides the point. Um, ba- and again, there's so much parallel between our last conversation and this one, guys. When we start talking yep. about identity, how do we capture Householding. and manage an identity? And that is done at various levels for various reasons. 
uh, cross device tracking. How does somebody track you between your cell phone and your home computer and your laptop or your tablet that floats around? Um, how do we connect individuals within a household together so that if it is a product that is very household oriented, we can cross promote between the husband and the wife of a household to reinforce a message? All of these things exist and there are mechanisms available to isolate individuals and avoid uh, household targeting. A classic example is in the uh, jewelry industry. Um, if somebody's looking for an engagement ring, that is not the type of thing that you cross promote to other devices in the household. I've, that example has been used at conferences uh, many times. I think what happened there is you're talking about a fringe product. It's it's a product that doesn't automatically leap out as being a don't tell anyone else in the house about this thing because it's a home improvement product. Just like if I was looking for shutters or roofing, I might cross promote that. And I think whoever that particular retailer was maybe didn't pick up on the time of year cues as well and the context of the holiday season as well as they could have before they excluded uh, same household identities from their retargeting pool. So, um, or the other thing is uh, Laura may have grabbed your phone and looked on it inadvertently. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, one, those things can happen uh, as well. Um, but fundamentally, I think there are some decisions that need to be made by advertisers that are often they're not pulling all the right levers to exclude things where they should. There's there's a real good example of that. Have you ever bought something and like the next day you get an ad for it and it's on sale and you're so yeah. mad? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. You have to put people into a different cookie bucket after they make the purchase. Right. right. <laughs> and if you don't have those mechanisms in place, you'll be doing that kind of stuff and making people upset all the time. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So this is this is what I'm getting at is that the tools are available. The know how is there. And yet these mistakes keep happening. Um, so with that in mind, what should brands do about personalization right now? What are what should the priorities be here? And Dan, if, if I if I can start you out with this, um, you'd mentioned we talked about that article, uh, which it will be up on Prove Intelligence uh, on the Prove Intelligence website. But can you talk about the function of Prove and what it's designed to do to help brands with this specific type of problem? Absolutely. Yeah. And. You know, Prove Intelligent, that's our, that's our marketing science, data science group. It's evolved significantly over the last 10 years from, you know, a web analyst to two to four to seven to data scientist. Um, as the expectation of our clients has grown uh, and the realization of the power of data-driven marketing and decision-making and how it can fuel and augment everything that we do in this uh, in the digital world, from media to content to SEO to even the strategies that we put forward, um, and we've seen a real uptick uh, in the commitment to analytics from our clients, and uh, that interest has driven you know the acquisition of different talent and a real ability to form a center of excellence model within the agency that we can bring forward our best people and almost act as a uh, objective third party to everything we're doing to let the data speak for itself so that we can make really, really smart choices uh, and we can make big decisions too. you know, incrementality and, you know, slightly deviating from the way things have always been done is not the path to real transformative, transformative growth. And what we're trying to do is use data 
uh, and our other skills to really help people push the envelope with respect to the decisions they make and the way they change uh, their business practices. So talk about these other skills is where I think it gets interesting, mm -hmm. because I think if you look at the data and allow the data to take you where the consumer is going, the problem is that we are currently living in this environment that is deeply disruptive, where people are not acting the way they've always acted. Oh, and their behaviors are radically like off the charts compared to what they were previously, you know, if anyone's out there trying to buy toilet paper. Right. So to, to try to personalize in an environment today where you're you know, well, we'll just put in a platform and that'll do it for us. Is that enough, especially in a, in a deeply disrupted time? And or are there specific types of skill sets that you're able to bring to the table to address that? Uh, yes and no. And also that exact topic is actually, we're, we, we are crafting a series of articles on that exact topic as we speak. So that might be a very deep discussion that we can pick up on another time the difference is a black swan event gray swan event white swan what are we dealing with right now how corrupted are the data pools how much can we rely on the models that we've built how fragile are they uh, and are they going to inform anything for the future that's a whole spectrum of conversation that i find very interesting and we have a bunch of our guys working on that right now um uh the, the guys we have on the team uh again ranging from people with actuarial backgrounds and people with data science uh, backgrounds uh, and people with deep marketing technology and web analytics backgrounds, you know, the combined power of, of those types of skills, looking at the reality of every client situation. And we don't have any two clients that are the same, no two brands or anybody listening, your business as well. It's, it's different. You're working with different variables and different parameters and truly understanding the uniqueness of your data set the uniqueness of your customer base and how they're behaving uh, and, and looking at this with an acknowledgement that you may or may not have just come through a period of significant disruption uh, and, 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 and layering that in to the decisions that are made and the models that are built in order to find that sweet spot. And, you know, Jenna will know as well as anybody that it all starts with an experiment hey, we hypothesize this, let's go and test this idea and see if it has an advantage or not. And if it doesn't, great, move on to the next one. And if it does, let's double down on that and continue to move forward. Yeah, so I think that that actually answers your question, like how much is too much? Where do you start? Is it good, et cetera? I would say if when, within your organization, there aren't a media person that can be paired with a data science person to do this sort of thing, you probably don't want to do it. If there isn't a willingness and an acceptance to test and learn and to be iterative, if there's no runway to do that and we're just chasing return on investment the whole time, you're probably going to have a hard time because it literally is an iterative learning process over and over and over. And as you get more signals in, these signals tell you what your next best move is. But that next best move is a changing target to Dan's point, especially, and to your point, NASA, right now, everything's a moving target. Mm -hmm. And so it has to be an organizational mindset. And you have to have people that understand the media landscape, how each channel works, how each tactic works. You have to have somebody on the data science side or marketing analytics side that understands how media works as well. And those two people have to work in tandem to hit this same goal of personalization because it can't just be one or the other. The signals are going to need some somebody to read them, as it were, 
and the media team is going to have to be able to execute and say, yeah, that's viable or no, it's not. Did you know that a swan can break your arm? Swans are uh, they're, mean they're, as hell. They are angry, <laughs> mean animals. Yes. So last thought here, Dan. Um, what about the subject of personalization frustrates you? I, I was you? waiting for this part. It's my favorite part. <laughs> it is my favorite part. <laughs> Honestly, the amount of opportunity being lost to inaction and indecision, perfection is the enemy of the good enough in this space, I would say more than anything else, because it's so complicated and it's so sophisticated and the decisioning alone on what to serve this person and how do you orchestrate journeys to the 10th degree? It's overwhelming. Whereas what we're talking about here, some of this is just straight A-B testing. Hey, what if somebody who exhibits this characteristic in the past prefers a blue button versus a green button. That's the worst example I could think of, but it's one that could make a meaningful difference to the business and just just do something. Um, there's there's a hundred ways to start and without taking at least one of them and moving, there's going to be a, a, a thousand reasons why things didn't improve. And I really think whether you've got all of the resources you need at your disposal, or you're working with an agency partner, or you're just a team of one in a small business, there's, you, there, there are countless opportunities for you to just start on that journey from the left of the spectrum and start delivering something unique to somebody so that we're not back to 51st dates, you know, constantly starting over every single day. Does he get the girl in the end? I forget. Sure, sure he does. They end up on a boat. Yeah. And there's a book, and he gets really good at like priming every day. You, know, you don't remember? I I got lost by the last Adam Sandler movie, which was kind yeah. of depressing. Yeah, that's but very I st- that's can we just one moment? I understand we're closing up here, but can we talk about Uncut Gems? Because I still, to this day, I've now seen it twice. I still don't know if I love it or hate it. I couldn't get through ten minutes of it. I was so exhausted. It's the most stressful thing I have ever seen. <laughs> but it's, I think I love it. it yeah, I love it yeah. too. And big shout out to Kevin Garnett, who was amazing in it. Uh, also, The um, weekend was, wow, his character. Right? Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> so with that, thank you, Dan. Thank you, Jenna. Um, that brings us to the end of our episode today on Inside the Funnel. And thank you for tuning in. See you next time. You've been listening to Inside the Funnel with Jenna Watson, Dan Temby, and Nasser Salul. Until next time, don't forget to like, subscribe, and connect with the AC wherever you see us online.